I've been thinking about it for a while and then I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, if I do something on, you know, weird Australian mysteries, yeah, okay, I'm going to get a, you know, a few people in Australia that might be interested. But it was something that I really did want to bring, you know, to a much wider audience. He reported that he was abducted by a seven-foot-tall female creature and she was clad in a marsupial hide garment. And this creature apparently grabbed Adam and, and ran off into the bush with him and took him to a, a rock overhang where she was actually cooking a kangaroo leg. And, of course, it's got to be remembered that um, for the Aborigines that lived in the area, that was just another animal that lived in the bush that um, they feared and respected and learnt to uh, stay away from. But for these white settlers coming in, it was a whole, you know, whole, whole different story. When the lake reappears, you'll see these fence lines going out through the water where the ground had once been bare dry. So, yeah, the, the water definitely comes and goes. Weird. That's clear for everyone to see, and nobody knows exactly where the water goes or where it comes from. I mean, there, there's lots of different theories, but no one's actually proven anything. And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio with your host, Tim Banal. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of BOA Audio Season 7. And in keeping with the Olympic spirit, even though uh, there's like a 100% chance you're not going to hear this during the Olympics, but <laughs> I've got Olympic fever. I want to reach out internationally and do an international edition of the program here this week. And as many people who uh, know me and listen to the program for a long time know, I'm a big, huge fan of Australia I really, I don't know, I feel a special kinship with the place. Uh, if I could, I would go there uh, and stay. I've never even been there, but I feel like if I went there, I wouldn't want to come back. It, it just sounds like such an enchanted place. And uh, as such, we're exploring this enchanted place this week on the program. Our guest is Andrew Nicholson. He is the man behind the website weirdaustralia.com. And what I like about weirdaustralia.com is it collects a whole bunch of different strange and unusual stories from Australia. And it, it, you can really tell that it's a labor of love. Andrew's not trying to push weird Australia t-shirts on you or anything else. It's just his efforts to put these stories out. And you can just really tell that there's a, there's a real inquisitive spirit behind it and a sense of adventure. So I really like that a lot, and that's why I wanted to get him here on the program, because I enjoy reading the pieces at Weird Australia, and you can tell that they're I don't know, I feel a kinship with Andrew as well. It's almost like he's cherry-picking the best of the best for uh, his readers, much like we do here on BOA Audio. Welcome to the program, Andrew. Uh, you know, I think it's going to be a really fun and enlightening conversation. Yeah, thanks, Tim. Yeah, I'm uh, really looking forward to it. So I guess, you know, let's start out with the bio, the background. You know, who is Andrew Nicholson? How did you decide to, you know, kick off Weird Australia? What what drew your interest into the strange and unusual? Well, it's uh, it actually goes back quite a long way. So I, I, I think from as soon as I can remember as a uh, a young kid, I was just always drawn to, um, you know, the mysterious and unexplained. Um, you know, I was... Uh, 
I love the you know uh, UFO stories and um, especially the Yowie stories. After I stopped reading little golden books, I, I started reading you know the Reader's Digest books on uh, you know all the uh, unexplained phenomena. So it's uh, yeah, it kind of uh, started at a very early age. And then what? You know, I guess what made you decide to, because lots of the listeners out there, you know, they are really, they read a lot, obviously, but they, a lot of them, most of them don't take the next step to sort of become a, a writer, if you will, you know, or a content provider. How did you decide, you know, I'm going to yeah, take my um, interest and then turn it into output for for the world, I guess you could say, on, on the Internet? Yeah, well, I, I guess it's um, it's something that I've been thinking about for a long time, and I, I do actually have a writing background, so... Um, I'm actually a uh, communications manager for one of Australia's private banks, and um, the, I, I started kind of writing um, within the financial services industry probably back in about 1995. So I do have that kind of writing background, and, and it's, it's something that uh, you know I did have in the back of my mind for quite a while. And um, and I must say, Tim, that it was actually um, you were one of the inspirations for me to actually start this site because, um, although I'd been kind of thinking about it for a long time. I'm laughing just because I didn't know this, so people are going to think. Oh, okay. yeah. <laughs> people um, think it's like some yeah, setup. Yeah, well, I, um, this is news to me. <laughs> okay, yeah, well, I, I'd been thinking about it for a while and then I'm thinking, oh, okay, yeah, if I do something on, you know, weird Australian mysteries, yeah, okay, I'm going to get a, you know, a few people in Australia that might be interested. But it was something that I really did want to bring, you know, to a much wider audience. And um, and I've, <clears throat> I've actually been listening to um, to the North of America for you know quite a few years now. I think the first show that I listened to was the uh, Super Volcano episode with Marie D. Jones. Oh yeah, that's a great one. Yeah. And um, I've kind of been listening ever since. And and just um, you, you know your um, you know, you've always been um, willing to, you know, talk to people from different countries and get different perspectives and, you know, find out what's happening in other countries. And, you know, that was one of the catalysts that, that made me think, well, yeah, um, there could be a wider audience for, um, you know, uh, for this stuff. So, Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. There's a huge audience for it, and we're... Uh... We're talking to him right now. Like I said, I didn't know anything about that, folks. <laughs> I'm really, I'm blushing like crazy here. I'm, I'm just, uh, well, thank you, sir. I appreciate the, you know, that I'm humbled that you uh, would say such things and that I could spawn such interest. Well, like I said, maybe that ties into this uh, kinship that I felt going into the interview because much yeah, like yeah, we- my work here, you... you know, you look at all the different stuff. That's what I love about Weird Australia. You're covering... UFOs, Yowies, poltergeists, uh, bunyips, which I've never even heard of, although I think I have oh, it in okay. the back of my right. mind. Yeah. But I, the name rang a bell, but, but, uh, you really explore that. A whole bunch of other stuff, underground bases and, and all kinds of things. So, really love weirdaustralia.com. Yeah, and it, it, it's something, you, you know, like, I, I, would, I would never want to be kind of regarded as, you know, a UFO guy or a, a Yowie guy, because um, I, I, I think if you kind of get too narrow, um, I, I think in, in 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 what you look at, then I think you kind of you know you lose that bigger perspective, and um, 
and, and, and I think, you know, you can probably end up going crazy by just focusing on one, you know, element of this, um, you know, this pretty wacky uh, world that we are into. Exactly, yeah. I don't know how some of these folks that are super specialized uh, don't get bored. That's what I think would happen yeah, to me. Exactly, that's right. And, and and then you look at some people that just, you know, will focus on a particular case. Oh, I know. It's and then that becomes strange. their kind of life obsession and, you know, that is something that I've, um, you know, I've, I've always wanted to uh, steer well clear of. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. That makes both of us. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, when we were setting up this conversation, I suggested to you that, much like our friend Jason Offit, who appeared on the program earlier this season, his blog is also kind of a labor of love and, and collects these different stories. And I saw a real similarity between the two. So I thought it would be a good opportunity to do a very Offit-esque conversation here on the program where I cherry-pick some of the very best or weirdest stories from weirdaustralia.com. No pun intended or, uh, you know, no uh, alliteration intended there. And so I guess we'll just dive into the uh, the hit list, if you will. And the first one I sent you was The Wild Hairy Man of the Blue Mountains. This is a blog post where you talk about this yowie or this Bigfoot-like creature in the Blue Mountains. Of course, many folks who listen to the program have heard our conversation with Tony Healy, co-author of the book on the yowie, which is a fantastic piece of work. And uh, folks should definitely check that out sometime if they have not heard that BOA audio episode. But you make the point in this blog post that, you know, these Yowie reports predate the whole Bigfoot uh insanity or or mainstream resonance that it has now. And also that you've had some pretty interesting personal experiences in the Blue Mountains where you uh may have almost crossed paths with the Yowie. So tell me a little bit about this blog post and, uh, you know, tell me about these wild, hairy men of the Blue Mountains. Yeah, well, um, it's um, as, as, as you said, um, you know, I, I, I think one of the main things that um, a, a lot of skeptics have come out and said, you know, in regards to Yowies and Bigfoot, is that, well, how come we've never heard of these animals or these, you know, sightings, you know, before, say, the Patterson Gremlin film or, or um, you know, um, talk about the Yeti uh, back in the 1950s, but. There's actually been, I think, when um, people first crossed over uh, the Blue Mountains, which is a, um, a very rugged mountain range that lies just to the west of Sydney, and it, it covers something like uh, 10,000 odd square kilometres of, um, of national parks and just very rugged, thick bush, and um, it's a huge area, and most of it is um, it's still unexplored. But when the mountains were first crossed back in 1813 and people started moving into the area, uh, there's, there's been, you know, r- reports of, um, of, of these ape-like or gorilla-like animals, uh, being seen. And, uh, they're often referred to as the, the wild hairy man uh-huh. of the bush or, or, um, the yahoo. And then later, um, with Rex Gilroy kind of Bring the animal back into our consciousness. I think back in the 1970s, it started being referred to as the as the Yowie. But most of the references that I found in in, in the reports that I've looked at uh, referred to either the Yahoo or the Wild Hairy Man. And once I started looking into the reports, I was actually 
shocked at how many uh, reports that, that there actually were coming in to um, and, and being reported as, you know, it's, it's fact in newspapers and people being these creatures. Oh, you jump in there. Yeah, it's interesting that it seems like the Yowie reports treated this, I mean, I'm sure they treated it as a mystery, but it was almost, there were so many of them that it sounds like maybe that, I don't know, it wasn't treated with the ridicule that it is today or would be today. It was almost like this is just no, sort of an animal it, you it encounter. Actually, um, they were actually treated fairly matter-of-factly. Yeah. And, um, and, you know, a lot of these stories are dating back to the um, 1820s. In fact, one of the earliest stories that I could find is of a soldier in um, Governor Quarry's regiment and he was out hunting for uh, food in the vicinity of what is today the, uh, the town of Springwood in the Blue Mountains. And he, the story goes that he, um, while he was out hunting, he came across an ape-like animal that swung down from the trees and approached him, uh, making threatening gestures, and apparently the soldier uh, shot the animal dead. Now, I, I guess in today's terms that we would think, oh, he's shot a Yowie. Um, yeah, you know, it'd be like major news. You would, yeah, exactly. But but I guess back in the 1820s, to them, um, there would have been a lot of unknown animals out in the bush, and you know they would have just assumed that this was just another one of those unknown animals. And so he obviously, if if if, if the story is correct, of course, that. Um, he just left the body there to rot in the bush. I mean, given the ruggedness of, of the bush, it would have been pretty much impossible for him, you know, for one person to drag a, a body back into the, um, you know, in, into the village any, anyway. But um, well, it's weird. It's just a strange story. Uh, so it's how tells yeah, you about exactly. the times and, in a um, sense that this guy he could, you know, had he. What year was this? It was around 1820, Tim. Yeah, so you know, almost almost 200 years ago. If he if, he, if it happened 200 yeah, years exactly. later, this guy'd be like a worldwide celebrity or something. Uh, yeah, for, for shooting the exactly. Bigfoot. That's right. Yeah, um, and so and around that 1820 time, there were you know quite a few stories starting to come through of this um, wild hairy man, and and of course it's got to be remembered that. Um, for the Aborigines that lived in the area, that was just another animal that lived in the bush that, um, you know, they feared and respected and learnt to uh, stay away from. Uh, but for these uh, white settlers coming in, it was a whole, you know, whole, whole different story. Um, around the same time, 1820, there was a report of a pioneering family that lived in a... Um, a small bark hut in the bush and one of these creatures apparently came in and peered in through the window and then um, dashed back off into the bush. I, I think one of the most interesting stories is one just a, a, uh, a few years later where uh, there was a young uh, seven-year-old boy called Adam Firth and he reported that he was abducted by a seven-foot-tall female creature and she was clad in a marsupial hide garment. And uh, this creature apparently grabbed Adam and, and ran off into the bush with him and had him um, look into a, a rock overhang 
and where she was actually cooking a kangaroo leg and offered Adam part of the kangaroo leg. And wow. apparently he only escaped after the creature heard dogs barking and his family shouting out to him that they were coming, you know, they were searching for him in the bush. That's just weird because that's a strange, yeah, that's a strange yeah, sort of story because she's talking about things that you don't attribute to the Bigfoot at all, like wearing clothes and yeah, cooking food. exactly. Yeah, the cooking of the kangaroo leg and um, and dressed in marsupial clothes. So and seven foot tall as well. So I guess you know you could put that down to maybe being um, you know a local Aborigine had come along and taken him, but when it's seven foot tall, that's an Aboriginal doesn't really account for, you know, that kind of height, so... The only explanation is that he's seven years old, so maybe it looks seven feet tall to him, but who knows? Yeah, exactly, you know I mean? that, that's right. But, um, yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it's one of those interesting stories, and I guess, um, you know, you've got to uh, keep it into perspective and think that, you know, there obviously are other explanations for it. Nope. It's the same... In the next case where we've got, uh, in 1893, there was a shale miner at one of the little mining villages in the Blue Mountains called Glen Davis, and um, his name was Charles Wilson, and he went missing dead several days later. And with the condition of his body, it looked like he'd been the victim of cannibalism. Oh, God. And the people in the area put it down to him being attacked by the by the wild hairy man. So whether that's true or not, I guess it illustrates just how the um, how the people in the area at the time actually you know considered this to be a real creature and something to be uh, something to be feared. Exactly, because if they found some dude who had been a victim of cannibalism now, they wouldn't just write it off to the Yowie. It would turn into a massive yeah, exactly. yeah, police right. investigation yeah. and all kinds of stuff. So it's a, it was a whole different time back then. Now, in, in modern times, you've had your own personal experiences in this region uh, with potential, I wouldn't say Yowie encounters, but I guess they were kind of close or at least close to something weird and odd. So uh, talk about that experience that you had on a personal level. Yeah, it was um, yeah, it's, it's quite interesting. Um, where I live in the Blue Mountains, it's... Um, it's, I, I live in a village, but, so it's kind of a built up area, but you're back onto, you know, very thick, rugged bush. And, um, and then that stretches for miles and miles before there's, you know, any other kind of civilization. So it's, um, although it's, um, you know, there are other houses around, um, and it's in, in a built up area, you know, you're right in the, um, you are right in the bush, and it, it is very rugged. And so I, I often go for um, bush walks uh, in the area. And um, I was walking down this track one day, and it's only, you know, probably about ten, fifteen minutes from where I live. And uh, walking down this track with my dog, and just along a normal fire trail, and there was there was no one else around. You know, it's nice, peaceful, and quiet. And all of a sudden in the bush just to the left of me, I just heard a rustling and then these three or four bang, 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 like really loud footsteps. And I knew it wasn't a kangaroo or anything because I've I've heard plenty of kangaroos, you know, hop off in in the bush and you know exactly what that sounds like. Yeah. Um, But these were very loud 
footsteps, probably three or four, and then it just stopped. And I couldn't see anything, but at the same time, I, I didn't want to see anything. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I wasn't really looking too hard. Um, and I kind of stood there for a minute and just kind of tried to process what was what was happening and then decided it was probably time to turn around and, and walk back out of the track. But the, whole, but the time I was there, it's, I had this really strong feeling of being watched. Yeah. Now, how, I got a bunch of questions about that. How did your dog react, <laughs> and did you smell anything? These are two sort of things that might have might give us some indication of what might be going on. Yeah, um, my, my dog was only a young pup at the time, and he didn't react. But I guess um, that doesn't surprise me because um, around the same time, we were uh, walking along another track one day, and I was talking to one of my friends and um, kind of oblivious to what was going on around me. And my dog was just out in front, and he he was I think you know he was about kind of six six months old at the time. And um, both of us nearly trod on this massive um, python snake. Oh, wow. um, Yes, and and this was around the same time. So he he actually didn't didn't pick up on anything, and I didn't didn't smell anything. Um, And and I know that um, that is, and and, and that's something that I was was thinking that was going through my mind as well. Like I said, it doesn't really surprise me because in that area, um, it's, 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 it's not like any creature would be rolling around in mud or yeah. it's, 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 it's a very dry bush. Uh, there's a few little creeks running through it, but it's, um, you know, it's an, an, an animal living in that environment wouldn't be getting a lot of mud or anything on it. So I guess that didn't really surprise me, that aspect of it. But in talking about the dog, um, it took me a few months before I was kind of prepared to go walking back down that track again. But uh, once I did, and my dog at this stage was, you know, obviously a little bit older and I let him off the lead and he'd run out in front of me. But as soon as we got down to that part of the track where I had that first uh, experience, the dog would just stop dead in his tracks and not go any further. Ah. Um, and I would kind of keep walking down and I'd have to call out to him and he would just stand there and watch me and, um, and I could, you know, just tell that he didn't want to go any further and eventually I would kind of coax him down. But, um, yeah, it, and it was around the same spot where that original, uh, encounter happened. Oh, so he remembers. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I'm, I'm just wondering if, like once he was a little bit older and a little bit more aware of his surroundings that he actually did pick up on something and if something was there yeah um you know he he didn't want to uh he didn't want to go anywhere near it yeah and um and I did have a couple of other kind of experiences along that track I was walking along there one day and kind of got down a little bit further and um, as you go down the track, you come to this kind of rocky ledge that goes off into, um, down into a rainforest area where there's a, a creek that runs through it and you've, you've you know, the, the type of bush changes into more of a kind of rainforest. And I was walking along there one day and I just noticed 
because uh, you're looking down on the tops of the trees and I just noticed one of the trees was um, laying from side to side as if something was actually down there pushing the tree from side to side. Yeah. And I, I looked around for the wind and there was there was no wind and I, I don't know, I just got the feeling that there was something down there and it was like sending a warning to me. Jeez. I take it you didn't go any further to investigate what was pushing on the tree. Um, no, well, I, I, I felt safe because I was kind of up this up this small cliff, so I, yeah, I, I gathered I was I was pretty safe there. But I guess, um, and I had one more experience along that track, so I kind of jokingly started referring to that as the as the Yowie track. Yeah. Um, another time I kind of got towards the end of the track and uh, walking along and about to go back up the hill. And on the other side of the hill, and it was kind of a little bit away from me, so I kind of felt safe that I could hear something crashing down through the bush when it coming down the hill towards me. Uh-huh. And um, and it was whatever it was, it, it it was big, and you could hear the you know branches breaking and. It was kind of it, it was coming down, and I, I felt like I was kind of far enough away for a bit. And then, as it kept coming, I thought, "Yeah, it's time to get out of here now." <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. Jeez. So, as is this, uh, have you heard from other people like around you that have had similar um, sort of experiences? Yeah, I, I haven't actually spoke because I, I mean it, it's something that's kind of hard to. to uh, Bring up a bring conversation, up people. <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, but there. Uh, um, I mean, just just ha- having a look at, um, at reports on 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 the uh, on the web, there are quite a few people in my area that have had uh, experiences. Yeah. Um, I know that there was one guy. It, it was quite a few years ago, but he he was driving along the highway there late at night. And um, and he reported a you know an, an eight foot hairy creature come out and he nearly hit the hit the thing with his his car so he came to a screeching stop um, and this thing put its hands on the bonnet of the car and looked in peered in through the window and then ran off into the bush and I, I think that was about kind of you know two or three o'clock in the morning. Jesus, now. I don't know. The, the laws here in America vary by state to state, but what would happen if somebody in Australia? It's probably the same in Australia too. But what would happen in Australia if somebody were to shoot one of these yowies? Because it sounds like this place is ripe for a serious uh, investigation and sort of uh, on the ground look for the yowie. Both so and, and and you know not to get into the shoot the kill or no kill debate, but what would be the what would be the outcome of something like that? Do you think? Yeah, well, well, I think um, a lot of these sightings actually occur in um, what is the Blue Mountains National Park. So, ah. um, yeah, so you're really not allowed to be taking guns <laughs> in there and, and, and shooting anyway, although I think um, recently the laws have just changed to allow some limited hunting in, um, in national parks, but it's I, I don't think it's anything that, the authorities have really kind of given much thought to because it's, um, you know, it's, it's the owie. Except for people that are interested in, um, you know, cryptozoology and 
um, the unexplained, it's 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 not really on the radar for uh, for most people. So yeah, so you might yeah, be able to get away with it, but I wouldn't. <laughs> it would be yeah, interesting. Yeah, I, and I, I mean, from personal point of view, I um, I'm definitely against the um, the shoot to kill argument. Yeah. I, I'm more of the I'd I'd be happy if these. If, if, if these creatures kind of stay elusive and that we don't actually, you know, end up with a, a, a body or a, a life specimen, I, I, I think the, the, the mystery of it is more important than, um, than actually finding a creature. Interesting. That's an interesting perspective. Yeah. And, uh, and, and, and I know that probably goes against what a lot of people think, but, um, if we find one and we have conclusive proof, then, Hey, all we've got then is you know, another creature, really. But I'm, I quite prefer the um, the mystery of it all. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's a good point. You know, if we had the answer to all these mysteries, we wouldn't have anything left to talk about. So it's yeah, exactly. uh, something that needs right. to stay a mystery. Now, another blog post that I thought was really interesting at weirdaustralia.com was this one on Devil's Pool. And you'll have to tell me more about the general you know location of it and whatnot. But I was really interested that there's these aboriginal legends that surround it, while also having this contemporary issue of these mysterious deaths. So there's a lot going on here with the Devil's Pool down there in Australia. Tell me about this uh, weird location. Yeah, um, the Devil's Pool is an interesting one, Tim. It's um, The Devil's Pool is up in, uh, it's just south of Cairns in uh, far north Queensland, and it's the Devil's Pool is actually at a place where three creeks run into one, and then it's uh, in, into a big pool and then there's a couple of big boulders and then it, water kind of goes down through there and then drops off to about, uh, 50 feet below. So it's, it's actually quite a, um, you know, a, a, a dangerous spot to start with. Yeah. But, um, there does seem to be an inordinate number of deaths at, at, at the place compared with, um, you know, a, a lot of other spots around Australia, which are probably equally as, um, is dangerous, but what's interesting about the Devil's Pool is that there's an Aboriginal legend, dreaming legend, about a young Aboriginal girl called Ulana and a handsome young man from another tribe. Mm-hmm. And Ulana was set to, um, it was arranged that she was going to marry uh, one of the tribal elders at a time when another tribe came into the area and she met a young man from the other tribe and they fell in love, but she was set to marry this um, tribal elder. Yeah. So what happened is that uh, they fell in love, uh, decided to run away so they could be together, and when they were found, they were actually found at the Binder Boulders, which is what we now know today as the... Devil's Pool, mm-hmm. and what happened is that um, the uh, tribal elders came along, found a couple there, they grabbed Alana and grabbed her uh, lover and separated them, and Alana broke free and actually jumped into the pool and drowned. Oh, boy. As a... Um, you know, she she knew that she she wouldn't be with uh, her lover. Yeah. So she jumped in the pool and uh, killed herself. And what's surprising today is that um, 
since about 1959. There has been 17 deaths at the pool. Weird. And uh, interestingly, all but one of them have actually been young men that have died there. Uh, I think there was there was one woman, but um, of, of the other 17 reported deaths since 1959, that's um, weird. All of yeah. them have, or yeah, all, all all of them have been men, and also they were not only men, but they were also visitors to the area, so uh, tourists. There hasn't been reports of locals actually dying, which is interesting because. The Ulana's lover actually was a visitor from another tribe, so there's a, a connection there as well. Yeah, yeah, and also that they, ostensibly the visitors would have no idea about the legend anyway, so it's not even like, you know, so it's an even more strange sort of thing. It's not like some subliminal yeah, subconscious exactly, thing. exactly, yeah. So, um, and I, I guess, you know, you, you could account for kind of the... Uh, you know, reckless behaviour and people not taking the um, you know the precautions that they should when swimming in in you know a, a dangerous area like that. But um, it's interesting that not all the people that have or the men that have drowned there have actually been swimming in the pool at the time. We had one instance where there was a young couple and they were standing together on one of the rocks and they were actually looking into the pool. And there's actually a photo just of the couple moments before a uh, a, a wave kind of r- rushes up and sweeps both both of them into the water. Oh, weird. And the um, the, the girl is lucky enough to survive, but the, um, her, her boyfriend is swept down into the water and, uh, and is drowned. Strange. Are there, is that... Normal that there would be a wave on. Uh, imagine that, like, a yeah, wave I, I, yeah, more a kind of as as a surge of water coming yeah. down through the creek, I guess. But still, yeah, yeah that's not um, not what you would consider a, a, a normal thing. Yeah, that's weird. Well, we have a place here in Massachusetts, uh, it, where I am in America, has a very similar sort of uh, story. Where it's like a cliff, and numerous people have died there or have been said to die there, uh, and it's got, like, Native American lore attached to it. It would be interesting to see if if that's a predominant thing from other listeners and stuff. You know, folks who are listening should send their stories in about maybe every sort of area has this weird, like, legendary cliff of some kind. But this yeah, exactly. is very weird. Yeah. Yeah, there's an, an, another, um, there was a 24-year-old, his name was Peter McGann, and he, he died there at the pool in 1979. And he was just jumping um, jumping between two two rocks, and it was just a short space, but he actually slipped and um, and, and fell into the pool and went missing and and uh, was later found uh, drowned. My goodness. Do they have, like, warnings up there and stuff now? Um, yeah, well, they, they they have put warnings there, but it doesn't seem to uh, doesn't seem to re- deter people at all. The last recorded death um, that I had at the Devil's Pool was of a Tasmanian uh, naval seaman who was visiting there. That was in two thousand and nine, um, and then uh, there was a couple in uh, around two thousand and six. One was a uh, Adelaide tourist. Um, and then there was also a businessman from Sydney. 
Weird. Uh, another interesting aspect of, of the Devil's Pool as well is that um, according to the local ab- Aboriginals, if you disrespect a sacred site, um, then bad things will happen to you. And actually, there's actually the story of um, there was one young guy there who was um, he was seen to be disrespecting the area. He was actually kicking uh, one of the plaques that commemorates. Uh, one of the people who died there. Oh man! Which is a you know pretty sick thing to do anyway. Yeah. And um and as he was kicking the plaque, he slipped and fell into the pool. Around. Oh. oh Jesus! <laughs> yeah. Wow, that's karma for you, man. Yikes. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. Jeez. Now, what about this this uh, story of the poltergeist in the town of uh? uh I'm probably going to mess this up, but like Gyra? Is it Guru? Uh, Gyra, yeah, you got that exactly right. Oh, nice. Yep. Um, yeah, Gyra's about, um, probably about three hours west of where I'm staying right at the moment, up in the um, in the mountains in the northern tablelands. And I, I think the, the Gyra ghost is probably one of our um, most celebrated uh, mysteries, I think. It's... Um, the Gyra Ghost is fairly well, it's a well-known story. And it started, um, strange things started happening at the, uh, the house of the Bowen family mm-hmm. in April, uh, of, back in 1921. And it, it all seemed to centre around the Bowen's, uh, young daughter. I think she was a, a, a young teenager at the time. It's um, what happened. The it started with um, you know the kind of usual poltergeist activity is thumping on the walls in the house, and it all seemed to centre on uh, young Minnie Bowen. Yeah. It um, soon the thumpings kind of it, it developed more into. Um, Destructive showers of stones that started raining down on the house. Oh boy! Yeah, and it's um, so these um stones started raining down on the house, both from within inside the house and outside the house as well. So naturally, like the, the Bowen family thought that there was um, you know, somebody was actually throwing stones at the house. So you know. That they would station themselves outside, check that um, they could never find any um, any kind of human cause for the uh, the throwing of the stones. Yeah. What I thought was interesting too about the story uh, in the blog post is that you also within that story there's this weird, really weird story about an elderly woman vanishing. And I was yeah, just that, completely blown away by that. What, what the hell happened yeah, there? Yeah, that was a crazy one. So just around the same time that this started happening, and, uh, and I think this one that you're referring to happened just before the poltergeist activity within the house. But, yeah, there was this very strange story of um farm worker um, seeing one of the old ladies in town, Mrs. Doran, and... He noticed that she was just walking across one of the fields. She had a potato in each hand, strangely enough. <laughs> and um, and she was just walking across the paddocks and kind of oblivious to everything that was going on. And she walked over a slight hill, and that was the last that anyone had ever seen of her. 
she was she was never seen again and it's strange that she would be carrying a potato in each hand. Yeah, that is odd. Well, do they know why she was? Do they have any idea what that was all about? It's, it's no, no. It's um, and I as, as as much as I searched, the the details were fairly scant on that one. Um, but yes, she was reported as having a potato in each hand, uh, walking over a, a hill, and was gone. And they never found her. Weird. Now, how did the poltergeist story resolve itself? Did the activity just go away, or did uh, I think oh, well, in the, in it, the post- it actually got um, it actually got a lot worse, uh-huh. and it attracted quite a lot of attention. So you had a lot of the townspeople because it was, um, Gaira was a small farming community, so everyone knew what was going on there. So you had local townspeople kind of setting up a cordon around the house each night to make sure that there was nobody throwing stones. Um, you had the local police involved, but still the, um, the stones kept falling inside the house um, and from outside. And interestingly, the rocks were being thrown at the policemen as well. So, Oh, weird. Um, if it was anybody... In the local area, having a or you know doing this, um, you would think that they would be clear of throwing rocks at armed policemen. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Weird. Yeah. You got to really, you got to be really off off your rocker to be to be doing that. Yeah. Exactly. That's right. But um, yeah, it, it continued, and um, one one day, so they. Shut it up the because um, all all the windows in the house were, um, ended up being broken by by these stones um, flying around in the house and uh, the Bowens had boarded up all the all the doors and windows and they were out working in the fields one day and um, come home and all the all the boardings over the windows and over the doors had been ripped apart and just laying around the yard. Jeez. So do they, now, how does it all come around to, I guess, who came to the conclusion that it was Poltergeist? I guess you kind of have to almost. You really have well, to it, Yeah, um, that was an interesting one as well because at, at the time it was referred to as the ghost of Gyra, but... During that time, it's and it's the first time I've ever seen mentioned in any kind of news reports anywhere of actual poltergeist activity and the actual word poltergeist used. So I, I think that was um, that was kind of brought into it from outside because you actually had uh, Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, the, um, the author of Sherlock Holmes, he became very interested in the case. And he actually sent a um, sent one of his um, well-to-do friends who was on business in Sydney up to check out the whole story. <laughs> Interesting. Um, and it was you know it was making big news in the papers and may have even uh, got some international attention. And I think that's where um, you know people were starting to suggest that hey maybe this is poltergeist activity rather than an actual ghost, and attention soon turned to um, Minnie, uh, the young daughter of the, of, the, of the Bowens. Yeah. What happened is that um, 
as this was continuing, I think the you know the, the police were getting pretty they were perplexed by the whole thing and you know trying to come to some kind of conclusion. And on interviewing um, Minnie, they got a confession out of her that she'd actually thrown some stones herself and thumped on the walls herself. So the police concluded that hey, she's actually done some of this herself, and we don't really know why um, why she would have done that. But um, the police just then concluded that hey, the whole thing's a hoax. Yeah. And, and and so the police kind of lost interest in the case, but the townspeople actually weren't convinced that it was a hoax. Though, and you know, they'd seen it firsthand, um, the destruction that had been caused, and it, a, a, a lot of the townspeople had witnessed it themselves. So uh, they remained unconvinced. But eventually, it it all got too much for the Bowens, and um, they sent their um, Daughter, they sent Minnie off to live with her grandmother in Glen Innes, which is probably which is another town, probably an hour or so away from Gyra. And the poltergeist activity actually followed Minnie and started occurring in her um, grandmother's house where she was staying. Oh, weird. Yeah. So, so it it, it seems that, um, and it, it's often said that poltergeist activity. Is often centred around um, an adolescent um, and often a girl, so that seems to be the case with the Gyra ghost. And it occurred for a, f- a few more times while she was in Glen Innes at her grandmother's place, and then it just seemed to die out and stop, and the whole story just kind of faded away after that. Odd, yeah, that seems to be the case with some of these poltergeist stories that it happens and it's like a flash and then it's gone. So. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, um, yeah, it did. Um, it did cause quite a stir, and then it became, especially around um, around Australia, became quite a famous case. Uh, case and other kind of Gyra ghost stories started popping up in, in in other areas around Australia as well. Oh yeah, so I'm on. sure. Quite caused some kind of hysteria in a sense too, where you never know what. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Yeah. So, and for a while, everything that was going on was, you know, referred to as another Gyra ghost episode. <laughs> Interesting. Now, tell me about these uh, these bunyips, because you've got a post about uh, bun- it's called bunyips, serpents, and other creatures lurking beneath our waters. And uh, like I had said, uh, the name rings a bell, bunyip, but. I don't think I've ever actually discussed it or explored it at length on on the show here. So, what what, what is this? Is this a, something that's specific to Australia, or is this sort of like a, a creature that other people have reported elsewhere? And, and what what is it? The bunyip. The bunyip is more an Australian uh, cryptid, I guess you would call it. Yeah. And m- most people in Australia have heard of bunyips and and um, kind of have some idea of what a bunyip is, but the problem with the bunyip is that uh, nobody can really kind of put a finger on what an actual bunyip is. There are just so many different descriptions of, of, of bunyips, yeah. and it's um, and it's it's even something that the local Aboriginals or, or different groups of Aboriginals kind of can't decide on, not can't decide on, but um, have 
different um, different descriptions and characteristics for a bunyip, and it, it kind of um, it seems like it's kind of a you know a, a catch-all for any um, strange animal. But, um, what happened in back in 1847? The Australian Museum in Sydney actually put on display what they um, claimed the the skull of a bunyip. It, it, it seems that that was likely a hoax and uh, somebody had been having a lend of them because the skull was on display for like two days and then it was uh, quietly removed. <laughs> what happened is that um, that got a little bit of attention in the newspapers and then a lot of people started getting in touch with the newspapers and in particular the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, and started discussing their own encounters with um, the bunyip and it soon became a fascination with the Australian public. Strange. Now, you said that it's sort of like this catch-all for mysterious sea creatures, if you will, but what are some of the ways that people have described this bunyip? Because it sounds like it is sort of like a, you know, like just a word for sea creature, but what are some of the various creatures? Because it's very likely there's multiple different things people are seeing and calling yeah, the, bunyips. How do they describe them? The bunyip um, seems to um, refer to creatures that live in um, what are called billabongs or um, water holes inland rather than kind of being referred to creatures that you know may live in the ocean. Yeah. The bunyip has long been feared by the Aborigines and they've had um, a lot of stories in their folklore about Bunyips, um, you know, living in billabongs and in creeks and and water holes, and you know, um, and they've warned their children to stay away, otherwise you know, they'll be eaten by the bunyip. Oh God! And it's um, said to uh, devour humans and sneaks up on them in silence. And but with the descriptions, there's as I was saying, you know, that there's a lot of different descriptions of it. There's one that has a huge body, sometimes covered in fur, sometimes in feathers. Oh, weird. And instead of legs, it has flippers. Um, there was a drawing by a Murray River Aboriginal in 1848, and that depicted the bunyip as having the body of a hippopotamus and a horse-like head, while um, a depiction by a Victorian Aboriginal showed it with the neck and head of an emu. So it just goes to show that it, there's really no kind of firm... It's not like the Yowie where you can kind of say, yeah, well, it's seven to eight feet tall and it's covered in hair and it walks upright. The bunyip is... Um, it's, it's, it's a lot unclearer as to what it actually is. Right. There's no, like, universal description of this thing. It sounds no, like, it's, no. like, I, like we said, it's a catch-all for all these different... Things now yeah, in, exactly in Australia nowadays. Go ahead. I'm sorry. There was another description in 1848 of it having a round head, elongated neck, and the body and tail of an ox. Another description in 1855 as a sort of half horse, half alligator, lurking in the you know the, the swamps and lagoons, and um, and then and another one as bigger than an elephant and the shape of a bullock with eyes like live coals and tusks like a walrus. 
<laughs> so it's um yeah, there's a lot of different descriptions for the bunyip out there. Yeah, so weird. Is this like a holdover to sort of uh less modern times? Like do people still have like bunyip sightings nowadays or is it something that sort of was was more way back, you know, in the 1800s, maybe early 1900s. Yeah, it's something that was more way back. It's um, I've not really heard of any recent bunyip sightings. So yeah, it's um, it's it's something that's um, probably most popular, probably in the late 1800s. Um, there was a few kind of eyewitness accounts, maybe into the early. 1900s, but from what I understand, it wouldn't be many encounters happening now. Yeah. Well, it's just interesting, too, from the descriptions that you have, that it's just like, these, these, it's hard almost to imagine what these people are seeing, because there's such bizarre descriptions. It's like combinations of animals that just don't make any sense. So it's so odd. Yeah, that's right. And, And I think you could probably put some of it down to, um, yeah, you know, p- people just, um, especially in the 1800s, you know, they're in a, in a strange land, you know, living in, right out in the middle of, um, of, of nowhere. And probably, you know, a lot, a lot of people's imaginations are getting the better of them as well. You know, hearing strange sounds of the night and just letting their imagination get the better of them, I think. Right, right. Plus, you see something that's sort of like half in the water, maybe, or obscured vision. You know, you, the mind fills in the gaps sometimes. sometimes yeah, exactly. That's right. right. And I think um, you could probably say eels and other kind of aquatic animals like that have probably accounted for quite a few of these bunyip stories as well. Yeah, there's there much. I don't really know much about the wildlife down in Australia, aside from the obvious stuff like the kangaroo and stuff. But are there like Possible like hippos or anything strange like that that might be down there that people might be considering a bunyip. Yeah, not really. But it's it's funny you should say the the hippo because um, one of our earliest explorers, I think it may have been Captain Sturt, actually, and he, he's a well-known Australian explorer that um, kind of went into the inland. He actually reported seeing um, a hippopotamus-like animal in one of the rivers, I think it may have been in southern New South Wales, and, I mean, there's no animal that um, that really kind of fits that description, but that's what he reported, so... Weird. Maybe there's just some kind of, like, you know, not necessarily a hippo, but some other sort of, uh, you know, you never really hear about... This could be, like, a whole different kind of cryptid we don't even know about yet, so... Yeah, I look, I personally, I, I put it down to... and. When you look at the Aboriginal stories, when they can't, um, they have different descriptions of them uh, themselves because with the uh, Aborigines, the you know they they lived in the bush. They they knew all the animals that lived in the bush, and they knew them intimately. So when you've got two different groups of Aboriginals that can't decide on what a bunyip is, I think it's me, I, I I think it's something that's more in the cultural memory, perhaps from when the megafauna uh, existed in Australia, probably you know forty, fifty thousand years ago. Because the Australian Aboriginals, some reports put them back to you know fifty five, sixty thousand years of uh, inhabiting Australia. So 
they would have been around at the same time when the, um, the megafauna roamed Australia. There could have been an overlap of about four or five thousand years when these you know, really large animals existed at the same time as the early Abor- Aboriginals. Yeah, that's true, and then it could just get passed down, you know, over the years. Where yeah, exactly, and yeah. Um, yeah, so over you know thousands and thousands of years, these these stories of were probably real animals that existed at one time. The stories keep getting passed down, and it evolves into these kind of differing descriptions of, of of what a bunyip is. So we said it's sort of like more of a. I'll say classic phenomenon, if you will, and you don't really know of any modern sightings. So I guess it's not really something that. So I know there are people down there who are like into Yowie research and Yowie hunts, and you know, isn't there a guy called the Yowie Hunter or something like that down in Australia? Yeah, there's a couple of these. There's a guy called Dean Harrison. There's yeah, Tim, Tim the Yowie Man. Yowie um, Man, that was it. Yeah, yeah. yeah well, I, yeah, I guess what, what I was gonna say is like. Is there anyone like really specifically focusing in on the bunyip, or has it kind of like been accepted as sort of this collective, like I said, classic creature that that really isn't uh, a part of the modern cryptozoological milieu, if you will? Yeah, yeah, I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd, I think it's, um, I think it's pretty widely, yeah, kind of um, left as being one of those more ecological kind of animals, I guess. Yeah. Now, you, you have a big post there also on uh, Canberra, which is Australia's capital, and all the weird stuff surrounding it. Talk about this situation with Lake George and how the waters disappear and then reappear, and there's no real discernible reason for, for why that happens. Because I thought that was, I mean, that's something that's, you know, you talk about like a Yowie sighting or a UFO sighting or something like that. That's kind of dependent on whoever's there and whoever sees it at the time and stuff. But, like, all the water of a lake disappearing and then coming back. That's that's clearly something that everyone can see and, and can look at, and there's no doubt that it happens. So, I mean, it's more of a, a natural phenomenon, perhaps. Uh, I guess just talk about that because it's so weird. Yeah, it's um, yeah. so Lake George, um, a lot of people in southeastern Australia would, uh, would know Lake George. It, it's actually on the... Um, Main highway between Sydney and our capital, Canberra, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's it is very strange. I've driven past it many times myself, and um, I've usually seen it, and especially probably for the last ten, fifteen years, I guess, where there's where there's been a drought that um, the lake is kind of virtually empty. And then other times you'll you'll drive past and there's a a lot more water in there and it doesn't necessarily correspond to rainfall the area at that time. Yeah. Um, When explorers first started moving into that area and uh, and exploring it, it was actually described as um, an inland sea with with waves and um, and actually. Quite deep, but um, you drive past it now, and one thing you'll notice it, as, as you drive along the road, it's 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 like a big open plain with, um, and it's it's been used for raising sheep and cattle. You'll see fence uh, fence lines going across out out into the lake. 
where uh, farmers have claimed the land when there's been absolutely no water in it. And then you'll you'll see when when the lake reappears, you'll see these fence lines going out through the water where the ground had once been bare dry. So yeah, the, the water definitely comes and goes. Weird. And now, that's clear for everyone to see. And nobody knows exactly where the water goes or where it comes from. I mean, there, there's lots of different theories, but no one's actually proven anything. Is it like a slow transition or does it sort of happen within like a year? Is it, you know, is it like, oh, you know, from... Um, yeah, I, it can happen quite fast, probably, I'm guessing, but, I, you know, within months. Rather than yeah, it's 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 not actually a you know a slow kind of rise or a, a slow fall. It can happen quite quickly. Weird. That's why it's called Weird Australia, folks. It's uh that's a, that's, that's, a that's right. And there's, weird story. there's actually been a lot of other kind of weird activity associated with Lake George as well, with UFO sightings and you know ghosts on the highway, and it's just a very weird. Um, strange area with a yeah a very strange vibe about it. And in that post on Canberra, you also talk about these underground tunnels and bases, which I thought was pretty interesting. You mentioned this place called the Sheep Paddock. I mean, as you say in the post, it's like a lot of these cities do have underground tunnels and stuff that that were built way back in the day. But it almost sounds like there's a a suspicion, maybe I don't know if that's the right word, but a theory or a concept that there's maybe more of a vastness beneath Canberra than than you know the regular folks seem to think. Yeah, well, there are. Um, you're right, Tim. There are a lot of tunnels and a lot of underground buildings in Canberra, and I think that was probably a result of um, a lot of Canberra would have been built during the Cold War, mm-hmm. so. You would have a lot of um, underground bunkers and, yeah, there's tunnels leading from, you know, one government building to the next. They're actually not all that secret and you do hear public servants talking about, you know, how they can walk from, you know, from building A to building B and um, underground and, you know, it saves them from getting wet when it's uh, raining or, you know, when it's really cold. Right. There are a lot of rumours about um, about a lot more secretive underground bases or un- underground tunnels and uh, bunkers and that in Canberra. And Canberra has all the um, you know the diplomatic missions in Australia as well. So there's obviously a lot of spying going on, and one of the um, the, the the main uh, suspicions is that uh, there's a place called the Black Mountain Tower in Canberra, and mm-hmm. it's a it's a famous landmark down there. You can see it from uh, pretty much wherever you are in Canberra, and um, there's a lot of stories coming out of there that that's um, used as a as a centre for uh, spying on diplomatic missions, particularly the Chinese. And uh, it's interesting that there was a um, news report on um, our national broadcaster, the ABC, uh, quite a few years back with a technician who gave an interview on the... Um, he was a whistleblower and talking about flying on the Chinese embassy from the, um, the Black Mountain Tower. And that 
news report is um, government put what they call um, a D notice. Yeah. On on the, on that article, which meant that it was uh, f- forbidden from e- ever being published again. So, oh wow! I tried to find that on YouTube and uh, uh, the interview, but yeah, it's uh, it's not anywhere to be seen. Jeez, that's odd. I didn't know they could do that sort of thing, but I guess it's sort of different down there. It's like a state secret sort of act type of thing, right? Yeah, ex- ex- exactly. That's right. But um, yeah, the, and, and there's other buildings. There's the uh, the Deakin Telephone Exchange, which is um, supposedly being used to espionage um, or for espionage purposes, and um, even talk about uh, the FBI and the NSA using that building. And then, yeah, as you said, there's the um, in Belconnen, one of the suburbs in Canberra. There's uh, what they call the sheep paddock. And that's just a, um, it is actually a paddock with sheep in it and there's a little kind of um, almost like just a little shed out in the paddock where, which is supposed to be the um, the nondescript entrance to, um, to a major underground um, command centre. Jeez. Well, it would stand a reason. I mean, if it's if Canberra is the capital of Australia, there's got to be, like you said, if it was built in the Cold War and... The whole idea of like continuance of government and that kind of thing, it would stand a reason that they would need a, a pretty formidable escape area, if you will. So it's a kind yeah, of makes exactly. Sense. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I, I mean, I've, I've heard kind of conspiracy theories that there are, you know, there are whole cities built underneath Canberra that, um, you know, that are being used by the New World Order for. <laughs> uh, all, all that kind of thing, but you know, I mean, you have to take that kind of thing with a grain of salt, I think. And uh, you never know; there could be. But um, one of the things with these underground bases is that you're never going to get to the truth, you know, no matter how, how hard you try. Exactly. Yeah. There's even um, there's a researcher uh, who I mentioned before, Rex Gilroy, who was the um, Guy that kind of brought the the whole Yowie phenomenon back into um, into the spotlight, and he's he's gone on to research a lot of other things as well, and he claims that there's a deep underground base actually in the Blue Mountain. Oh wow! Yeah, where they're you know testing you know um, all these top secret aircraft, and because the, the, there are a lot of UFO sightings in the Blue Mountains as well. And, um, yeah, he's claiming there's a deep underground base there, but it's, it's, it's one of those things, you know, it's, it's, I guess it's like the Dulce base in, uh, New Mexico, is it? Yeah, New Mexico, yeah. Yeah, um, you know, how are you ever going, going to prove anything like that? And I guess the, the, the hard part that I can't understand or find hard to fathom is the, um, with a deep or a massive underground base in the Blue Mountains is, you know, if, if you're making a base like that, you've got to um, you've got to dig out a lot of earth and you've got to move that earth somewhere, and that would be hard to hide. So, yeah, it's like where'd all that stuff go? Yeah, yeah, exactly. That's right. And then also, it's um, you, you know, it's. Uh, we have Warragamba Dam there in the Blue Mountains, so there's a massive catchment area for the 
uh, for all of Sydney's drinking supply. Um, so I, I just find it kind of hard to believe that you would have a secret military installation uh, hidden in what's not only a national park, it's a World Heritage listed area and it's also, uh, you know, contains all of Sydney's drinking supply. So Weird. interesting story though. When you talk about these sort of secret bases and stuff, you got to mention the uh, the one that seems to be the most famous to us here in America, which is the Pine Gap facility over there in Australia. A lot of people think we'll call that the Area 51 of Australia, and there's all kinds of like rumor and innuendo attached to that. What do you what do you know or think about the uh, this Pine Gap area? Yeah, um, yeah, Pine Gap's a funny one. That, that that's um, again, it's it's hard to know what is fact and what is fiction about Pine Gap. Um, it's it's in it's kind of slap bang in the middle of Australia, outside of Alice Springs, and it's a um, it's a desolate area. But you know, I've I've heard stories that there's whole you know, underground cities there, and you know, they're testing black triangles and all the usual. Uh, conspiracy theory that you, <laughs> yeah. that you hear about, but again, it's I just find it hard to. Um, I just don't think they could hide something that at large. You know, the, the Pine Gap base. It's it's you know, it's fact that you know it's it's there. It's used by the U.S. military to uh, for spying purposes around the world. But um, some of the stories about you know, deep underground cities there with um, and you know, testing UFO type aircraft, yeah, I, I just kind of find that a bit hard to fathom. Well, one of the weird I've heard, I've heard people go so far as to as to say that Pine Gap is you know like a joint alien U.S. or a joint alien uh, human base, or the aliens use Pine Gap, or I, I mean I've heard. It's interesting. I don't know if you ever heard this. I forget exactly who said it. I think maybe a remote viewer or something said like there's four bases on on the on the planet for aliens, and one of them is in Australia. And it might be Pine Gap. I forget if he said that specifically, but I've, I've heard it said that there's like an alien base in <laughs> in Australia. Yeah, I've, so. I've, yeah, I've, I've I've heard that I've heard that too. But I it's it's hard to place much credence in stories like that. Um, yeah. You know, there, I mean, there, there are, in the Northern Territory where Pine Gap is based, there are a lot of weird things happening there and, you know, there are a lot of, um, of credible UFO sightings in the area. Um, but, you know, to start talking about alien bases and that kind of thing, it's, I mean, it, it makes for interesting stories, but... Um, you know, for me, anyway, that's kind of as, as, as far as it would go. Exactly, yeah, we can't do much about it. I'm sure they're not going to, you know, I'm sure you're not going to get very close to an alien base if you decide to venture out yeah, that way as it is. Exactly. I mean, it's, it's, it's hard enough for an Australian politician to gain access to uh, Pine Gap, so... Uh, yeah, there's not much hope of finding out what really goes on there. Exactly, yeah. This is like America's Area 51. They don't let like anybody Yeah, exactly. That's to. right, yeah. Surprise, 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 surprise
Energizer. Now the longest-lasting battery you can buy. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Mate, you wouldn't read about it in the bullet fitting. What I've got here is some genuine Australian kangaroo tail soup. Get some of this well, in well, digger. Look at that, mate. Hey? How about that? Cook to be so. Three dollars is pretty doggone good there, Jeff, for my son. Tell me, Bruno, you ever eat any food like that? No, I must admit that I've never eaten Australian kangaroo tail soup. Kangaroo tail soup. That's what it's made out of. What part of the tail, Jess? I don't know. Probably the part the kangaroo sits on, right? I have no idea. Now, to go down a whole different path beyond uh, these underground bases and stuff, we've talked about the Yowie. But you also have a blog post at weirdaustralia.com about the, uh, 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 let's see if I can get this one right, Jerawera, which is the, uh, the short, hairy man of the woods. And I know when we had Tony Healy on, we talked about the Junjidi, which sounded kind of similar to this. So it sounds like, uh, as we've discussed on the show before, there's not just these large Bigfoot-esque cryptids down there in Australia, but also a smaller dwarf-like creature, if you will, uh, uh you know, a feral, creatures, tiny, small Bigfoot, Ewok-esque <laughs> thing down there in Australia. So what, what is the Jarawera? Share this story, and uh, and I presume it's pretty much the same thing as the Junjidi? Uh Yeah, it is. And I'd never heard of uh, any mention of the of Jarawera before, but, um, yeah, I, I just found uh, one account in a newspaper where they were... Um, where they were talking about it, and it was um, it was an article in the uh, Clarence and Richmond Examiner of Grafton, which is actually not too far from where I'm staying here at the moment. Yeah. On the 31st of July, 1880, where a um, correspondent was talking about this animal that they called the Jerawera, and it was described as a uh, a biped about the size of a small. Um, what they call the Aboriginal woman, and it walked erect, used its hands and arms just like a human would. And <laughs> according to the Aboriginals, it was um, was rarely seen and didn't care to go anywhere near humans. And the Aborigines, they were pretty happy to uh, steer clear of the Jarawera as well. It, it was um, described as having a slow gait and covered with hair. Weird. Now, is, tell me about the tell me about the the then, since you said this one, this Jarawera is sort of a uh, a standalone story, if you will. I'm sure you've heard of the Junjidi. How how prevalent is this in comparison to the Yowie, and you know how well known is it in, in that in that neck of the woods? Yeah, well, it's um yeah, it's it, it seems um like I've I've found a, a, quite a few articles you know popping up with references to this um. These smaller, uh, hairy bipeds that, um, are around the four foot tall mark. Interestingly, they're sometimes described as having small tusks and also, uh, three claws on their feet. And one, one of the interesting aspects is that, um, there's a modern encounter that I have in one of my posts from the Blue Mountains where a lady was horse riding and come across an animal that what she describes was about four feet high with small either fangs or tusks and it had three claws on its feet and it was carrying like a, a part of a dead kangaroo and what happened it ended up spooking her horse and she um 
she fell off and she actually ended up getting quite seriously injured and ended up in hospital. But the description that she provided um, is very similar to um, some of these quite early descriptions of um, of encounters. And I've, I've got one that's um, from 1878 from the Northern Star of Lismore. And it was about a shepherd and he was um, he was camped at a place called Cunningham's Creek and he was boiling his billy when he noticed that his dog started barking down a uh, down a, a, a gully from where he was um, boiling his billy. Yeah. And when he went up to investigate, he found um, what he described as a as a short hairy man with um, with three claws on its feet, and it was um, all all his dogs were quite scared and ran away from this animal, except for one. And this one dog raced up to attack it, and this uh, four foot high hairy creature picked it up and threw it about thirty yards onto some rocks. Oh wow! And the animal got back up and went. The creature again and again. The um, this creature picked up picked up the dog and threw it onto the rocks. And so the young shepherd was worried that his his um, his dog was going to be killed. So he actually threw a rock at the uh, threw a rock at this thing, but um, kind of it, it didn't do anything. But um, you know, it didn't seem to affect the animal in any way. And the animal looked up and saw this um, you know, the, the shepherd boy standing up on the cliff, and it, apparently it came up, started climbing up to uh, to come after the boy. But he uh, he got the hell out of there pretty quickly and uh, <laughs> took off. But, uh, yeah, it's just interesting that the what he described is very similar to this modern encounter from the Blue Mountains. Interesting. Yeah. Now, is it? Here in America, like, everybody knows what the Bigfoot is. Is it kind of like that down there in Australia with the Yowie? And in comparison, how is it with uh, the Junjidi? Um Yeah, I, I think um, the Yowie is kind of fairly um, fairly entrenched in our culture here, and people have heard of the Yowie, and there's there's been, I think they were ice blocks or something called Yowies at one stage. Oh, wow. So people... People understand what a yow is, but um, yeah, I, I think um, for, for most people, it, when they think of yowie, it would be typically the, the, the bigfoot type creature that's you know, seven to eight feet tall. Unless you're somebody that's interested in type of thing, uh, I don't think the smaller four foot four foot high creature would um, would be that well known. Yeah, that's the case here in America because we have accounts of sort of small creatures like that, and it's it, it, in a way it's kind of got like the bunyip thing going on too, where they all go by sort of like different names, different descriptions, but there's a sort of a overarching small hairy creature uh, phenomenon that still hasn't really gotten a serious amount of attention. Uh, so it seems like that's probably the case over there in Australia too. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And I think um, you know the 
the, the larger type creature is probably a lot more dominant and so when people have sightings it, it, it is usually of the large one and I guess another thing would be that because they probably look similar is that they, they you know if, if these creatures are a separate species uh, they are probably more mistaken for just a maybe a juvenile yowie that's true yeah that would make sense yeah yeah now one of the other again see as I said we're going on different paths here with weirdaustralia.com looking at different stories and stuff like that uh, tell me about this tale of the SS Waratah because it, it, it's not just the story of a lost ship. It's got all these different elements tied to it. A cursed name, prophetic dream, a ghostly omen. Uh, you know, ships go down all the time. Ships disappear all the time. But this one, you know, almost seems like it was foreshadowed or, or was meant to be, if you will. So I guess talk a little bit about the story of the SS Waratah. Yeah, so the SS Waratah was a ship, and it was sometimes it was um, described as the um, the Southern Hemisphere's Titanic at one stage. Oh wow! It, it, it was a, it was a new ship, and it was designed to bring passengers, um, mainly migrants from England, over to Australia, and then. Um, so it could convert the cargo holds in the in in the ship to uh, to the steerage passengers, mm-hmm. and then when it was going back to England, it could turn that into um, those holds back into um, holds to carry uh, coal. Yeah. So it was um, and it it, it was sailing around nineteen oh nine. And the last time it actually left port was in July 1909 when it um, left the port of Durban in, in South Africa. On that voyage, there was a, um, the captain of the ship was Captain Joshua Ilbury. And um, I think he had a few concerns that the ship may have been a little top heavy. And I know one or two of the other passengers on the ship were kind of worried about the same thing. So for the ship to go down and be lost without a trace, it's it's not really that um, that much of a mystery, I wouldn't think. But, yeah, it's, um, as I said, it's, it's, it's more these uh, things that kind of happened on the periphery of that uh, ship being lost that are the... Um, the more interesting elements of the story. So, for example, the um, the, the name of the ship, uh, Waratah, seems to be a cursed name. There was quite a few other ships called Waratah that went down, and I could only find one ship called Waratah that actually, um, well, that is actually still afloat today. There was um, is a, a tug. And it's an old boat now in it's uh, in Sydney Harbour that's more a museum piece than anything. But, um, that's the only example of a ship called Waratah that I could find that's still, um, still floating today. The listeners out there that are unfamiliar, the uh, Waratah is actually a flower here in 
Australia and it's um it's actually the state flower of New South Wales. So it's it's a pretty kind of innocuous word and um I'm not sure why that there would be such um an apparent curse on on the name, but um, there's, there's been another a number of other ships that have gone down with the name Waratah. And in 1848, there was a sailing ship called Waratah. It was bound for Sydney, and it sank off um, off the English Channel and took 13 lives. Uh, then in 1887, there was not one but two ships named Waratah which sank off Sydney within months of each other. And then following a cyclone in 1889, there was a, a new ship called the Waratah, which was in uh, from Fremantle in Western Australia, and that sank off um, Cape Preston in the Pilbara with all the crew lost. And then five years after that, there was another Waratah lost in Northern Australia. So it's, um, it seems to be a... Um, cursed name. Yeah, it's weird. That's weird. Mm. And interestingly, there's, um, in I, I don't know how many Sydney listeners you've got in, but there's new trains that um, our E-Rail network has been pry- trying to bring into, uh, into circulation, and they're called the Waratah trains, and they've just been plagued with problems for years there. Huh. Uh, they're actually years overdue to be um, to be introduced onto the city rail network, and they've just had problem after problem with the, uh, the company developing the or building the trains, almost going broke, and yeah, so they've just been beset by problems. So it, it seems that the curse of the of the Waratah continues today. Very strange, yeah. That's odd. You'd think that they would figure it out by now not to use that name, but I guess they don't. <laughs> yeah, exactly, that's right. But, they, um, yeah, there was also the, um, with the Waratah, there was the uh, the prophetic dream of uh, one of the crew, sorry, uh, one of the passengers, Claude Sawyer, and uh, he was a seasoned ocean traveller, and he had some reservations about the seaworthiness of the Waratah, which I, I mentioned earlier. You know, it seemed to be... Some people thought it was a bit top-heavy and didn't sit well in the water. And he was the only passenger that actually survived because he jumped ship at, at Durban and he told an inquiry into the loss of the ship a couple of years later that um jumped ship because he had a prophetic dream one night um, while ship was docked at Port of Durban in South Africa. And in his dream, he said he was standing on the ship's deck, uh, staring into the sea, when a knight on a horse rose out of the waves, winging a medieval sword, and um, the blood-stained sheet fluttering behind him. And apparently the apparition, when it rose out of the water, was screamed out, Waratah, Waratah, and then faded away. Weird. And comes so, back to that name again. Yeah, exactly. That's right. And he, so Sawyer had this dream, and then the next day he went to one of the passengers who he'd befriended on the ship and told her about the dream and kind of warned her that maybe she should 
consider leaving the ship, but she said, no, no, attaching this ship to England. And so he um, then went to his bunkmate and, um, and spoke to him about the dream and also tried to get him to leave the ship, but he refused as well and said to, um, said to Sawyer that perhaps he should speak to uh, one of the local South African priests about what he experienced. So he, he did do that and... Um, priest just scoffed at his uh, dream. <laughs> lawyer was still, uh, still quite disturbed by it, so he actually jumped ship in Durban, and um, and that was the, the, the last port that uh, anyone had seen the ship. So another interesting aspect of the SS Waratah disappearance was the fact that um, the last ship to see the Waratah um, was an, a ship called the Clan McIntyre, and Clan McIntyre was um, watched the Waratah steaming up the coast for several hours after it left the port of Durban. The seas at the time were rolling and producing white caps, but it wasn't considered um, you know, very rough seas or anything. And the captain of the Clan McIntyre had said that. Um, Waratah actually looked perfectly upright and straight in the in the water. It's, it's uh, 9:20 a.m. Waratah altered course and crossed from the Clan McIntyre's starboard to port side, and then picked up speed and disappeared from sight of the uh, Clan McIntyre and disappeared into the mist. So that was the last anyone had ever seen of it. But at the inquiry, the captain of the Clan McIntyre, who was considered a very credible uh, captain and he'd had years of experience, it, he said that he saw the uh, ship, it was an old-fashioned ship, uh, following the Waratah into the mist and... His uh, summation of that was that um, what he'd actually seen was the Flying Dutchman following the Waratah and that that was a bad omen. And it wasn't long after that that uh, the actual Waratah must have sank because it was never seen again. Weird. The sea is a strange so, and it's, yeah, and it, realm. It's kind of interesting that... Um, yeah, yeah, you, know, you could put that down to, you know, I guess, um, you know, seafaring superstition, but this was a captain who'd had years of experience and was very well regarded. So for him to come out and at an official inquiry into the loss of the Waratah and actually talk about being a flying Dutchman following the Waratah, um, you know, it's... You wouldn't think that you're, if you're a well-respected sea captain with with a career ahead of you that you would go and make something like that up and that if you were going to talk about that at an inquiry, you would think long and hard before actually admitting to that. Exactly, yeah, yeah. So it just goes to show you that this guy really put a lot of credence in what he saw. 
So yeah, exactly. That's right. Even more bizarre. I thought it was interesting uh, looking at your blog that you have a couple of posts about sort of. Uh, well, you have one specifically that I mentioned to you originally: the phantom animal prowling Tasmania's Huon Valley, and uh, just uh, maybe from there we can segue into sort of these black panthers and 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 the, the stories of these big cats that that you know are also mentioned in Australia. But tell me about this uh, phantom animal because that's always pretty weird. Tasmania, which is an island state uh, just off the off off the southeastern tip of. Uh, of Australia, and it's 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 actually been uh, separated from the mainland for uh, um, a, a long time. So we've had uh, different animals that have developed on the island that have that have been distinct from the from the mainland. And one of those was the, um, of course, the uh, Tasmanian tiger. It's um, there's also been other strange animals that have been sighted on the um, island. And there was one in particular uh, during 1949 which had uh, the locals of a small town called Mountain River, which was a, a fruit-growing settlement at the foothills of um, Tasmania's Mount Wellington, had them uh, quite quite worried and concerned for a while and uh, had many of them not prepared to go out uh, without carrying a gun with them. Weird. It was, uh, yeah, so it, it, it actually started being referred to as the, um, as the phantom animal. Strange. One of the first people to see it was a Mr. Rhodes. He saw the animal about five feet away from him and, uh, he said that it left him scared stiff. He was, um, he claims that the animal had a, a big head and a broad white chest and swung round and made a slow gallop across a hay paddock when he saw it. Strange. Is it like a canine, or was it... What was the what was the sort of animal description? Was it a canine, or some kind of other... Um, yeah, well, there was there was some confusion about that. Um, they found some hairs on a barbed wire fence, and, um, and it, some residents thought that it was a, a large wild dog, but, um, but Mr. Lovell, who had, had seen this, um, disagreed with that. He, um, he, he thought it was more of a, um, of a, a tiger type animal. Um, and one of the reasons he didn't think that it was a dog was that he placed some, uh, cooked and raw rabbit no. baits, um, and raw meat was taken, but the, the, the baked rabbit, which was usually preferred by dogs, uh, was actually left behind. Hmm. Interesting. That's a good little test. I never thought of that. Yeah, ex- exactly. That's right. Yeah, you, you wouldn't. Uh, yeah, wouldn't necessarily think of that. So, on the fourth of April in 1949, there was another report of the phantom animal. There was a Mister Knopp, and he was felling uh, wattle trees near his orchard, about 300 yards where the animal was first sighted by Mr. Oates. And uh, he discovered a place where a large animal had slept, and apparently for quite a long period. And what he was saying, that um, the horse could not get into the spot, that the area was patted down, was too big to have been done by a dog. So he's claiming there that the animal was 
more the size of a horse rather than a dog. Oh, wow. And, um, yeah, so, and then there was another sighting of it, uh, this time by Mr. Vince, and they'd been out mustering cattle about 7.30am. They saw a, a large animal which, with, a, um, with a long tail that tapered off, and according to them it resembled a greyhound, except that it had what Mr. Vince described as a large bull-necked head. So there's some aspects of this that makes it sound like it could have been a Tasmanian tiger, but then when you hear the, when you re- read the report that it, um, you know, had a large bull-necked head, then that doesn't sound like a Tasmanian tiger at all. And when somebody's referring to it as the size of a horse, yeah. Uh, but I, I think this is another case where, you know, different people are making different different descriptions of the animal. Yeah. I'm surprised that the Tasmanian tiger is still that large, if you will. I mean, it's a, it's a cryptid, right? But they haven't really ever gotten one, so it's sort of just... Yeah, well, I think, yeah, with, with the Tasmanian tiger, they haven't found one for a long time, but I, I think with the... Got to be remembered that the wilderness in Tasmania—it's—it's a very wild place. Yeah. And there's a lot of places where where people wouldn't go. So I I think there's there's plenty of opportunities for small pockets of Tasmanian tigers still to be surviving to this day. And even in you've got um, reports in Tasmania um, or in Victoria and South Australia of uh, of creatures similar to a Tasmanian tiger. And then you've also got creatures up in the um, in the north of the country um, around well kind of further north than Cairns and up towards New Guinea of similar animals as well. So and there are Aboriginal stories of a um, an animal that resembles a Tasmanian tiger from um that was uh, lived in northern Queensland. So at one stage they were all up and down the east coast and it's quite possible that there were still pockets of them living in some of the more remote areas. Another post that you have on weirdaustralia.com I thought was interesting. It's titled, It's Raining Luminous Stones Inside the House, which is another uh, pre-1900 tale of bizarre activity, which I thought was just really odd in and of itself. So I guess talk a little bit about that, because it does kind of sound a lot like the the Gyra event in a way. So who knows what's going on there, but maybe you can enlighten us as to this this tale of luminous stones. This was an interesting one, um, and I uh, accidentally came across this story and quite glad that I did. It was, um, and yeah, it, it was another case of uh, poltergeist or apparent poltergeist activity, and this time it occurred in uh, early 1887. So it was um, at a time before uh, poltergeists were actually known within the context of, of ghostly activity, I guess you would say. But yeah. this was the large family. And they were living on a remote property uh, near the central western New South Wales town of Mudgee. And they started becoming terrorised by this um, inexplic- 
inexplicable nightly rain of luminous stones that fell and sometimes floated inside their house. Weird. Yeah, and it was, uh, now the large family was a, well, it was actually was a large family. They had 15 children. And it all started when the mother, Mrs. Large, refused the children uh, the opportunity to have a dance at night. Yeah. And that was the time when the, um, when the poltergeist activity started happening. Uh, and what was occurring was that um, it, it all seemed to centre on Mrs. Large. She would um, she would walk into a room and stones would actually start falling through the house, and they would come or apparently come through the ceiling or the, the roof of the house and either fall or float inside the house. And what was happening? They were they appeared to be actually luminous. So what she referred to them is that they were uh, white and then when they fell onto the ground, then they would turn dark. So it looked, it, it, it appears as though they were were luminous or you know, had phosphorus or something like that on them um, when they were coming into the house. And one of the interesting aspects of this one is that they were often getting um, hit by these stones inside the house, and, um, and when they would hit somebody, they, the stones wouldn't leave a mark, and it felt more like they were just being, kind of, as one of the children described it, being touched by a feather. Oh wow! So it wasn't like it hurt when they yeah. were hit by this. Yes. So it that kind of ruled out. Being, you know, the stones being thrown by somebody, which is naturally what they first suspected, and Mrs. Large actually suspected when it first started happening that it was some of the children, kind of, you know, trying to get back at a, uh, in a vengeful kind of way for not letting them um, hold a dance that night. So, it, um, the, the children were experiencing the, the, the same thing. They would be hit by these stones, and um, the and one of the young children was actually hit on the cheek at one stage, but and this was witnessed by other people as well. So um, as soon as the story got out, there was um, kind of a never-ending trail of, of, of local people coming in to actually witness these change goings on. And I guess for me, that's one of the most interesting thing about these poltergeist cases is that. You know, it, it's not just happening to one person, it's actually, um, or one person experiencing the whole thing. It's, um, as in the case of the Gyra ghost as well, um, other townspeople are actually seeing this happen as, as, as well. So you, you've got, um, you know, you've got multiple witnesses to these, uh, strange events. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's not just like, a a story passed around the locals or something like that. People are seeing this happen. Yeah, it makes it, it even exactly. And um, and with the um, with with this case as well, um, the, you had reporters coming out and staying at the at the family house because this is a fairly remote property, so it wasn't like you know you just wander down the road and go in and um, <laughs> yeah. And, 
and, and check it out and then go home again. So um, people that were coming over were often, you know, staying for one or two days and experiencing this for themselves. Strange. How did the whole thing resolve itself? Did it, much like other poltergeist well, cases, again, it kind of go away? Yeah, it's um, it's strange because um, you had these reports in the in the papers over you know maybe one or two weeks, and then all of a sudden it just um, there was just no more reports anymore. So whether it was just the um, the, the public just thinking, oh well kind of not caring anymore or whether the activity just died out. It's um, from so long ago, it's hard to tell. But um, it just um, it seemed to carry on for a couple of weeks and then it was over and done with. Strange. Now, over the course of this conversation, we've covered all kinds of different stuff. As the man behind WeirdAustralia.com, how do you come upon these stories? How do you decide, like, what you're going to write about at the time, you know, how, how do these things come onto your radar? Yeah, it's, um, often it's kind of, um, it will be serendipity. So I'll just come across something and then, um, and I might be looking for something completely different, uh, as in the case with this one. And then all of a sudden you've, you know, you've, you've found this great story that's, um, that's probably, you know, may have been lost for like a hundred years. They're the kind of stories that I try and uh, try and tease out. And sometimes it's, it's harder than other, other times. But um, for me, it's it's most uh, satisfying when you can find a weird story that nobody's really um, um, heard about before and. When I first started doing the blog, it was, um, you know, I I thought I would uh covering, you know, the one of the better known cases, you know, like the Frederick Valentich disappearance and uh the Kelly Cahill alien abduction and all that kind of thing. And, but, you know, I was thinking, look, these stories are already out there. Um and a lot of people know about them. I've got to dig a bit deeper and try and find the stories that have you know, remained hidden. Um, and I guess that's what I try and do each week. And sometimes you are going to, um, you know, you will have to cover um, more well-known stories, but it's, um, it's, it's, it's when you can kind of tease out those uh, those hidden stories that um, is most satisfying for me, that's for sure. Oh, absolutely, yeah. It's always great when you find something that you haven't heard before and you're like, whoa, this is crazy. Yeah, exactly. And I, I was doing, at one stage I was doing a um, an, an article on uh, time slip experiences because that's, a, that's an area that really fascinates me. Yeah. And... I just stumbled upon this story of this old guy who, this was just after World War Two, and he'd come out, um, he'd bought a pair of uh, old army trousers from the local army disposal store just to wear around his farm. Mm-hmm. And he, when he put them on, he, he walked out into his paddock early one morning to collect the sheep and walked into this, mist that seemed to appear out of nowhere and 
all of a sudden he was um, he looked around and he was in a jungle and he could see this Australian sniper uh, laying on the ground and he knew that he was going to get shot by a Japanese soldier and this guy started calling out to the Australian soldier to watch out and um, and he saw the watched the Australian soldier get killed. Oh God! Um, and then the mist disappeared, and he was back in the um, in his sheep paddock with the sh- with the sheep around him. And to me, that was quite an amazing story. And yeah, it was just one of those ones that just. I just accidentally stumbled upon and stumbled upon it at the time that I was actually writing the uh, the post on time slip experiences. Strange. So it, 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 it's when you can find stories like that just at the right time that um, yeah, everything just seems to come together. Absolutely, yeah. It's like you're meant to yeah, that's get right. that story out there. Yeah, exactly. That's right. Very weird. Now, when we were setting up the interview, uh, I sent you the list of stuff and, and, and mentioned that I was trying to sort of stay out of the realm of UFOs. But you pointed out that there's a lot of really interesting pre-1947 sightings that are intriguing because they don't have the cultural bias that you get in more modern sightings, I guess. Without, you know, you don't have to get into specifics about the actual sightings, but, I mean, what are your thoughts on that? What, what's your take on on why uh, these more classic sightings are seen in a different light, if you will. Yeah, as, as you say, the um, the pre nineteen forty seven sightings uh, they really really appeal to me because there is no cultural bias there. You know, we don't equate um, or when they're reported, they're reported in matter of fact terms or in terms that um, kind of best describes what they're actually seeing, but in the context of, of um, what they understand for that day. So I've found stories where, you know, they're talking about an aerial procession of vehicles, um, where they're seeing, um, you know, buggies and, um, and other, you know, vehicles typical of that day actually flying in the air. Hmm. Um, and then, you know, you, you've got lights that they're seeing and often, at, at night, and often they're put down to, you know, oh, it's, it's the morning star or the evening star, but you, know, you have reports of um, of these lights blinking in and blinking out huh. and, and and just um, doing all these manoeuvres that you would not expect from a natural celestial body. There's reports of um, you know, low-moving meteors that change direction, there's just a, a whole range of interesting um, reports that just don't appear to be natural. And one of the favourites for me, I guess, was um, was just a very short uh, report that I found from uh, the Ballarat Courier on the 1st of May 1914. And it's describing what sounds like the Norway spiral. Oh, weird, the Norway spiral. Interesting. Yeah, and it's... Um, so the re- report, uh, the headline was uh, "Phenomenon in the Sky Resembles Gigantic Snake." And the <laughs> report was um, a telegram from Longreach states that a strange phenomenon was witnessed there last evening. A light appeared in the sky about 45 degrees above the horizon, 
After a while, it took on a spiral form resembling a gigantic snake. It stood out snowy white in the sky and it could afterwards be seen faintly in the darkness. When I read that report, I immediately thought of the uh, the Norway spiral, which I think occurred in 2010? Uh, I think the end of 2009, yeah. Yeah, yeah, that's right, yeah. And it, it's interesting because after the Norway sp- spiral was reported, there was a similar um, spiral reported in, in Queensland and probably, you know, within a couple of hundred kilometres of, of where this 1914 sighting was um, was made. Hmm. Weird. Yeah, that spiral, I remember when that happened, everyone was agog over that. It was a very interesting uh, yeah, case. And, uh, yeah, and kind of, and, and I, I know it was put at the time put down to you know rocket testing in Russia, but um, and I mean that's entirely possible. But yeah, it just seems strange that you've got this similar report from uh, from 1914, which was before we had uh, intercontinental rockets. Yeah, exactly. Flying yeah, through, flying through the skies. So. Very weird. There was another one that um, reported in March 1918. That was in Her- uh, Hobart's Mercury, and um, that was under the headline "Phenomenon in the Heavens." And that was um, <clears throat> there was a couple of people standing on their veranda and looking out east, and they saw a bright object. And they say it was about the size of the moon, um, and the moon is at its smallest. They're saying that it rose gradually and then hovered for a few seconds, made a dive, and then rose again, and then uh, moved off into a northerly direction and disappeared. So that doesn't sound like any any normal object that you would you know see in the night sky. And like you said, they have no, they had no cultural frame of reference as far as like they don't know about UFOs because UFOs aren't yeah, haven't happened exactly yet. that's right yeah so there's um, you know I think today so many reported sightings are just um, you know you have to kind of instantly dismiss them because it, it, it's like somebody sees a, a a light moving in the sky and instantly it's a, it's a UFO piloted by aliens and, exactly uh, yeah I'm hesitant, I guess, to ask about the the two big cases of famous UFO lore down there, the Westall case and the Valentich case, because I feel like they've probably been done to death. But I know we've definitely done the Valentich case on here numerous times. Um, I, I presume you're familiar with the Westall case, though, right? Um, yeah, the, yeah, the Westall case is interesting. I, I mean, they're, they're, to me, they're, they're both very interesting cases, and I remember uh, the Valentich case from when I was... Uh, a young boy, um, you know, interested in UFOs and things. So, um, for me, the Valentich case was probably the one of the first ones that I kind of really, really got interested in. But, um, but yeah, as, as you say, it's um, it, it's a pretty well known case, and there was just a whole heap of files released on that case recently. Which, um, oh, really? Yeah, it's um yeah, just in the last few weeks actually and oh, wow. it's um there was quite a quite a lot of um documentation released and mainly going into the um into the inquiries that that were made after the disappearance 
I haven't had a chance to you know, obviously go through them all because there was there was something like a couple of hundred pages. Yeah. From what I did hear or read, it sounds as if the authorities were trying to, um, to kind of muddy the waters a little bit with uh, by suggesting that uh, Valentich was UFOs and as some of the things that he's spoken to about his um, about UFOs with his girlfriend. Oh, I see. So they're trying to intimate maybe that do if he ever yeah. You know, Telling his girlfriend that, um, you know, oh, if a UFO landed here, you know, I would want to go into the craft, but would only want to go if you came with me. Um, Weird. Yeah, so I don't know whether that was a deliberate thing to try and come to the conclusion that it was um, it was Valentich actually hoaxing the whole thing or faking his own death or something, but. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's an interesting interesting case, but um, yeah, the, I, me the, the the Westall case is um, is an interesting one too because it was obviously witnessed by uh, quite a number of schoolchildren and and teachers as well, and it only happened you know, in 1966, so a, a lot of those a lot of those witnesses um, are, are still around, and they are still you know, many of them are still quite moved by the whole experience. Oh yeah, I can imagine. It sounds uh, but, um, it's a yeah, very I mean, well I mean exactly case. what they saw that day remains a mystery, and you know, with government military involvement with um, you know, trucks coming along, and it's um, yeah, it's, it's just another one of those murky cases. Yeah, it's it's what was that sixty six? So. It's remarkable that yeah. we still really don't know much more about that. Uh, when did, was this, no, I don't know, I mean, if you'd really know, but like, we, we talked about the pre-47, when did like the whole idea of UFOs become, uh, I guess, a, 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 par, a possibility for people who saw these things? Was it like around the Westall well, case? Or, yeah, so? it, it was soon after the um, uh, Kenneth Arnold sighting in 1947 that, um, you know, your first Start seeing reports here of um, you know flying saucers, and particularly the late 1940s and through 1950 to 1954, you have a real surge in sightings. And you know when you look through newspaper reports, there's um, there's reports. You know seems like almost on a weekly basis of um, of flying saucers and um, and yeah, it's you know, the typical flying saucer, aliens you know, inside. Yeah. So it's um, yeah, it, soon after the Kenneth Arnold event, it was it was um, it was happening in Australia as well. Interesting, interesting. That's sort of the overview of the stuff that can be found at WeirdAustralia.com. Now I just want to talk a little bit with you just about the the scene down there in general and what it's like. Uh, you know, here in America. Uh, I don't know what your entertainment options are. We have like 500 channels, so there, there's just a, a, a an overwhelming need for programming. So the, we're going through a bit of a paranormal boom, if you will, with a lot of shows covering all different stuff, like crypto stuff and ghosts and UFOs. I think there's at least like two or three shows for each of those subjects here on cable TV in America. Uh, what's it like down there in Australia? Is there... 
much interest in the subject, or is it sort of in a lull, or or because I know like it peaked in the UK with the X Files, maybe that happened down there. I'm not sure. Uh, you know, just sort of give me a lay of the land down there as far as interest in the paranormal, because we have a lot of listeners in Australia, so it, it's it definitely seems to be something that there's an interest in down there. Yeah, it's it, um, there is definitely an interest, but. Um, there aren't too many shows on at the moment, and I, I think it's um, it's a lot bigger in obviously in the states the, the whole kind of paranormal scene than what it is here. I mean, I must like from my personal experience, for example, uh, none of my family are in the slightest bit interested. None of my friends are in the slightest bit interested in oh, all wow. these topics. So yeah, I'm like a little kind of island. Uh, I know there's other people out there because I've, I've got quite a lot of interest in my my Weird Australia Twitter account and um, and yeah, obviously getting a lot of people from Australia interested in my blog. But um, the largest audience for my blog is is actually from the United States. So yeah, I think it is a lot bigger in the United States than what it is out here. And I don't have cable or uh, pay TV, but I know it doesn't really seem to be a lot of shows you know, with a paranormal theme on it. Yeah. If if they are, they're actually shows from the United States. So there's there's really nothing out here in Australia that's um, got that um, paranormal theme. That's disappointing in a sense, just because it's the the country seems like it's so ripe with uh, yeah, it is and um, stories. Yeah, there's, there's, there was a great show in the 90s that was an Australian show. That was called The Extraordinary. And um, and that was quite popular for a while. And, and, and that delved into um, not only Australian mysteries, but w- which it covered quite well, but also uh, international mysteries as well. That's, um, that's where I actually found out about The uh, Devil's Pool. Was, that was actually on an episode of... Uh, extraordinary. Oh wow! And yeah, it's 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 a shame that we don't have anything. It's a, it's kind of a typically Australian uh, on on now, but um, yeah, they're, they're just um, me. There just doesn't seem to be a huge amount of interest that there is to be in the United States at the moment. But in saying that, though, we've got. Um, I think you know podcasting has, has brought a whole new aspect to uh, to the paranormal as well, and you've got um, mysterious universe in Australia, which is you know, which is quite popular. But again, most of their audience comes from the United States as well. So I think yeah. it's um, it, it, it's probably growing here, but it's definitely not going through the um, the, the popularity that it is. United States. You've covered, as I said, you've covered the whole gamut of different uh, topics on Weird Australia. Is there, is there other areas that you have yet to explore that you want to get into or other areas you want to dig deeper into or anything like that that you, you know, would like to look at more on Weird Australia or stuff that people can look forward to in the future from you uh, at the blog? Yeah, I'm, I'm looking into... Um into doing some more ghost stories, um, which I've haven't really covered that much um, in 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 the past, and it's um, I mean for, for me the the 
stories of UFOs and and you know yaois and other cryptic creatures. That's what, that's what I really enjoy doing. But um, yeah, I I would like to explore uh, ghosts quite a, quite a bit more than what I have done in the past. Um, it's, yeah, I, I I I think it's um, you know, for me. I, I one of the reasons I started doing this is. You know, it's 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 a learning experience for me as well. So there's probably things out there that I today that I don't even know about that you know hopefully I will stumble across over the coming weeks or coming months and um, and, and can write about. But um, yeah, it's um, it's it's finding all these new different things that I get excited about. And uh, I'd also like the opportunity down the track once I get more of a following also is to um, I'd be happy for uh, readers of the blog to start sending through stories and, and maybe investigating and uh, posting some of those more than what I have done and I know I've put out a call a couple of times on, on some posts for people to send in their stories but haven't really got much of a response there but uh, I'd, I'd love to hear more uh, readers' stories and, and, and be able to do some posts on uh, original stories that people have. Absolutely, yeah. Well, the folks out there who are listening, uh, who are in Australia, send send your stories to Andrew so he can uh, flesh them out and yep, get them I'd, out there I'd on love, the blog I'd for sure. I'd love to hear about them. Yep. Well, on that note, we'll uh, we'll call it a night here, and I look forward to talking to you in the future as WeirdAustralia.com continues to grow with more and more stories. I got to give you props, man. You're doing a great job of uh, unearthing some pretty unknown stories, pretty uh, mysterious tales that people hadn't heard before, or really had maybe only been mentioned in passing. Uh, you really fleshed them out for a, a greater audience, not just in your country but around the world. So you're doing fantastic work, and uh, I, I, I've come to find out this is your very first interview ever. So you did a great job on the show, and I look forward, as I said, to having you back on the show to talk about more stories from Weird Australia in the future. So thanks again, Andrew, and, you know, best of luck with the blog, and anything I can do to help you out, definitely let me know. Yeah, well, thanks a lot, Tim. It's been great being on the show, and uh, and hopefully I can uh, come on again. Absolutely, buddy. That does it for this edition of VOA Audio Season 7. Big, big thanks to Andrew Nicholson for coming on the show and giving us so much time. You can find out more from him at www.weirdaustralia.com. Pretty simple, all one word, weirdaustralia.com. Check it out. Moving right along now, it's time for BOA Audio Listener Feedback, and we have a slew of emails from the BOA Audio Listeners, so let's dive on in. The first one comes from T.B. Raven, no hometown listed, Here's what he has to say. I loved your Artie Six Killer interview. To be honest, I sundanced in Blackfoot country for eight years, and I saw the star people face to face. They would actually stop time and come and doctor us in the ceremony. I would never expect an outsider to believe this, but in Indian country, for the elders and medicine people, seeing star people is a matter of fact, just like seeing a bear or a moose. It was the coolest thing. At twilight they would enter the arbor, and honestly time was frozen. I would wake and chat with them. Birds were still in the sky. Dogs were frozen. 
I would call it a dream if it weren't for the fact that I saw them every year at the same time. I've only shared this with my elder and my closest. I would swear on my pipe this is truth. T.B. Raven. Wow, pretty powerful stuff from T.B. Raven. Uh, I don't really have anything to say, but I guess that's an example of the kind of stuff that Artie Sixkiller Clark hears all the time. Really tremendous stuff. I, I really don't know what else to say to that. Uh, it's, a, it's an amazing story from T.B. Raven. Perhaps you should try and communicate with these star people next time uh, you're in one of these experiences, although it sounds like he doesn't Sundance in Blackfoot country any longer. But maybe if you have another encounter, TB, I would love to hear more about it or more of what you have experienced because that sounds like some enlightening stuff. And thank you for sharing the story. I actually reached out to TB before I taped this segment to make sure it was okay to read this story since he said he only shared it with his elder and his closest. And TB was very happy to let us share the story here on the program. So thank you, TB. And again, just another really thought-provoking and fresh tale from the Native American community with regards to these star people. The next email comes from Ken in Buffalo with the subject title, John Rhodes. Here's what he has to say. Interesting show. I don't personally believe it one bit, but still really interesting. Your guest presented a logical and sane explanation to an insane topic. The only real misstep was his saying that birds are mammals. I think what he was going for was that birds are warm-blooded, not mammalian. He is pointing to the idea that at some point, or always, dinosaurs were warm-blooded, a theory which is supported by Robert T. Baker in his work called The Dinosaur Heresies. Your guest's ideas are very similar to the fictional explanation for werewolves, put forward by Whitley Strieber in his book The Wolfen. I am one of those people who think that people like you, Tim, should go further and be the gatekeepers to what is and is not a topic to be taken seriously in the paranormal world. However, some people think that it is too extreme. That being said, you have taken the perfect balance by going to the fringe of the fringe and bringing people on like John Rhodes who are intelligent, well-spoken, and believable. Keep up the fine work, Ken in Buffalo. Thank you very much for writing in, Ken. Much appreciated. Ken really is the tip of the John Rhodes feedback iceberg. And I'm only going to feature this one here on the show. I'll try and parse them out, I guess, as I go along. Because Ken hit on what seemed to be the biggest point that I heard from so many BOA audio listeners, which is surprising because it completely passed me by during the conversation, and that was John Rhodes saying that birds are mammals. I didn't even notice this, but within hours of the program being posted and then in subsequent feedback from many, many listeners, I heard over and over again that John made the mistake of saying that birds are mammals. And I was just completely confused by this, could not even recall the exchange. Now thinking back, I do know vaguely what people are talking about. I haven't sat down to try and find the specific clip. And the reactions to that misstep actually ran the gamut. Some folks were outraged and really uh, thought that John was trying to pull the wool over people's eyes and... People like Ken here 
kind of came to the conclusion that it was just a simple misspeaking on John's part. And I have not had the chance to reach out to John to find out exactly what he meant by the birds are mammals thing, but I presume it was simply an oversight on his part and a mistake. And the conversation was so rapid fire that I bet you that he wouldn't even recall making that mistake. I barely remember him saying it. So it was kind of funny that so many people noticed it. But I guess they're more up on birds and mammals than I am. So kudos to all the folks who kept noticing that. And I promise I'm going to reach out to John and try and find out more about the birds are mammals issue. Although, like I said, I'm pretty sure it was just simply a mistake on his part. And as far as being the gatekeeper to the paranormal, I'm sorry, Ken. Unfortunately, I'm going to have to pass on that job simply because that is not really in keeping with how I see the program in general. Really, I believe in leaving it up to the BOA audio listeners to be their own personal gatekeepers as to what they believe and disbelieve from the guests on the program. It's not my job to tell people what to think. It's merely my pleasure to provide them with some stuff to think about. How they interpret it, how they fit it into their worldview is entirely up to them. Sometimes we have some extreme guests on the program. John Rose was pretty extreme. He said it right there at the beginning of the program that he is way outside the box, but... I can tell you, no matter how extreme it was, folks, it really was an enormous hit as far as listenership here on the program. Tons and tons of folks listened to that John Rhodes interview. They simply loved it or loved to hate it and tuned in in a rage about these birds are mammals. I don't know. (laughs) So, with that said, thank you for writing in, Ken. Much appreciated, and thank you for your kind words about the program. Next email comes from Mike in London, England, and here's what he has to say. Hope you're hale and hearty with your snowshoes and your rabbit that probably looks like Harvey Keitel, because they generally do. Would you consider having Dale Drinnen on your show? I'm a fan of his Frontiers of Anthropology blog and have heard some old podcasts he was a guest on, and he really knows his stuff. Not just in ancient history, but cryptozoology and a wealth of other subjects. It's been a while since BOA dipped into prehistory, and Dale seems to know every angle on it. Kind regards, Mike in London, England. First of all, thank you for writing in, Mike. Yes, my rabbit and I are doing quite well here with all this snow. Thankfully, it's almost gone here in the Northeast. And thank you for bringing Dale Drennan to my attention. I will check out his stuff. I can't obviously guarantee that we'll have him on the program, but I will definitely look into it and give the shout-out here at the end of the show for folks to check out his stuff. Frontiers of Anthropology. It is a blog out there, Dale Drennan. I will, as I said, take a look at it, see if we can fit him into BOA audio, although we are getting very close here to the end of Season 7, so he may end up popping up at the beginning of Season 8 if we can fit him into the BOA schedule. I agree we have not really dipped into prehistory in quite some time, so that's definitely a genre that I will take a look at here in the weeks and months to come on the program. 
because who does not love a little prehistory? Thank you once again for running in, Mike. Best regards to you, my friend, and got to give a shout out, of course, to the international listeners, Mike, all the way in London, England, tuning into the program. Just tremendous stuff. Thank you for running in, Mike. Next email comes from Lawrence. No hometown listed. Here's what he has to say. I have an idea how you can raise some money. iPhone slash Android app. You could find an app developer to write some apps for each BOA season collection. Sell each app for $5 a season, and I think you do pretty good. Even if your past programs are still around for download, I'd be happy to buy the back catalog for the sake of convenience, and also to send you a little love. Lawrence. Thank you for writing in, Lawrence. Very interesting concept. I will say that we have considered and toyed with the idea of doing one of those memory sticks that would contain the entire BOA archive. The only downside to all that, I suppose, is that we are still an ongoing program, so I'd feel kind of weird rolling out the BOA Audio Complete Collection on a memory stick and then pumping out a whole bunch of new episodes. I guess that would be the responsibility of the memory stick owner then, to continue to download the programs and uh, complete the memory stick collection. But nonetheless, I have definitely considered it, and I have considered the whole app concept. I would love to do a BOA app. If anyone out there is an app developer, write to me, because I would certainly want to develop a BOA app. Maybe not necessarily what Lawrence is suggesting, but certainly something very cool and in keeping with the BOA brand. That said, here at BOA we are infamous technological ludites with regards to just about every form of modern technology. I just got an iPad like two months ago and finally got a smartphone about a year ago, so I am way behind the curve on a lot of this stuff. And as you'll be hearing in a few moments, I can barely run the BOA operation right now. The forum is down. i got all kinds of problems there. We're working on a revamp of Benal of America. So we have all these irons in the fire with regards to our web presence. So to add the whole app thing in or some new merchandise rollout would be a bit too much to put on the plate. Maybe later on in the summertime we'll do some stuff like that once we've got the current fires at Benal of America put out. But I appreciate Lawrence's suggestion. I really do appreciate that he's thinking of ways to help out Benal of America. That is really humbling to hear that there's somebody out there thinking about ways to help us get by. So thank you for writing in, Lawrence. Thank you for your idea. I will definitely credit you if we get something like an app or a memory stick thing rolling out in the near or distant future. And on that note, we will close the book on BOA audio listener feedback here this week. Big thanks to Lawrence, Mike, Ken, and T.B. Raven for writing in on this edition of the program. If you'd like to get in touch with me for future installments of BOA audio listener feedback, here are the ways to do so. You can write to boaaudio at hotmail.com or head on over to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. Beyond that, I would suggest that you join up at the official BOA forum, theusofe.com, but as of this writing, it is actually down. We've had some technical problems there, 
involving our web host. Hopefully we can get it back up soon. There is a very serious issue in some ways, something very concerning to me, that we may actually lose the history of the US of E with this difficult transition right now at the website. So on the bright side, if you're one of those glass half full folks, we may end up launching a, a whole new forum very soon for Banal of America. It needs a facelift itself. So this could be something that comes out of a technical problem. We may have a whole new fresh look for the US of E. So stay tuned to that section of Banal of America for updates on what is going on with the forum. But if you want to contact me, other ways, of course, are social media, Twitter and Facebook. You can find me via punching in Benal, B-I-N-N-A-L-L. That will bring up my profiles. Feel free to befriend me, follow me, or poke me. It's all good, and I'd be happy to have you as part of my online circle of friends. And finally, let's plug Benal of America on Facebook. We are up to 942 likes, folks. We are very, very close to the mythical and mysterious 1,000. How are we ever going to top 1,000? It's going to take forever to get to 10,000. So this really is going to be the big milestone. So, <laughs> so if you can get us to 1,000, that would be great. Anybody after 1,000, they're just late for the party. Let's be honest. So you want to be within the first 1,000. Let's... Let's really call it like it is. And if you're not one of those people who have not liked us yet, head on over to Facebook, punch in Banal of America, and like us. It would be greatly appreciated. Up next, it is time to thank the outstanding and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Richard Thomas, Marla Pena, Bruce Pretty, Tony Morrill, our webmaster, Ray Weigel, and our graphics consultant, Jeremy Boston. We're kind of in a holding pattern at BOA right now while the folks behind the scenes tinker with the all-new look for BOA. I've gotten a very, very rough look at it, and it is very exciting. I cannot wait to roll it out in full-blossomed form for the BOA visitors. So right now we're kind of rolling out columns slowly, having some of the writers stockpile new columns in wait for the new format. So there's a lot going on behind the scenes. We might have a new forum rolling out soon. We're going to have a whole new look for Benal of America soon. So the renaissance of 2013 at BOA has just begun. And as always, stay tuned. To Benal of America. Now comes the time in the program where I take my hat off and pass it around to the BOA audio listeners and ask you to make a donation to the Benal of America franchise. How do you do that? That is simple. You head on over to Benal of America and click the PayPal button. That'll take you to PayPal. They'll walk you through the process. It's safe, simple, and secure. But what if you don't trust the internet and you want to make a donation via snail mail? That is also very simple. You can write to Tim Benal, P.O. Box 232, Pinehurst, Mass, 01866. And the complete address can be found at Benal of America under the PayPal button. 
As always, it goes without saying, folks, no donation is too small, and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the entire franchise up and running, freely available, and commercial-free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. On the next edition of the program, we are going to be tackling one of the most chilling, bizarre, and off-putting mysteries that has emerged in the world of Esoterica in the last few years, and I'm talking about the Black-Eyed Children. We've only briefly discussed the Black-Eyed Kids in the past because the subject is so weird and troubling. However, last year, accomplished esoteric researcher David Weatherly put out what some are calling the definitive book on Black-Eyed Kids, titled simply Black-Eyed Children. And I finally got the chance to sit down here in the new year and read Black-Eyed Children and was completely blown away by this book. I just devoured it and knew that we had to get David Weatherly on the program for a lengthy discussion on the BEKs. I can't even begin to give you a preview of this, folks, but I can tell you that it covers the BEKs from top to bottom and looks at a whole myriad of aspects to this mystery. It is an episode I think folks are going to enjoy very, very much. David Weatherly talking about black-eyed kids. Trust me, my friends, it is an episode you do not want to miss. And on that note, we close the book on this edition of the program. Big, big thanks once again to Andrew Nicholson for coming on the show. Big thanks to TB, Raven, Ken, Mike, and Lawrence for their BOA audio listener feedback contributions. And, of course, enormous thanks to all you folks out there, the hardcore BOA audio listeners. Thank you for spreading the word about this program, and of course, thank you for your enduring support of the program. As always, thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.